Hello and welcome to DigiListen, a weekly podcast about digital service delivery for the voluntary sector. With the sudden impact of coronavirus, charities, community groups, social enterprises and voluntary organisations of all sizes are shifting their service delivery into digital remote channels. We've been hosting online weekly chats with folks from all kinds of charities, experts and people on the front line about what they're learning and how charities can make use of digital to reach people more than ever before. I'm Ross McCulloch, Director of Third Sector Lab, and this week we're talking about digital inclusion and online accessibility. Joining me each week is John Fitzgerald from the Scottish Council for Voluntary Organisations. Thanks, Ross. This week we were talking about accessibility and inclusion. They're two quite big issues, but really crucial to get right for building good digital services. We thought it was really important to help organisations understand what are the key principles they should be keeping in mind as they put together digital services what they should do to make sure everyone is included and everyone can use their services easily. Uh, So yes, we've talking about accessibility and inclusion this week and as you said, two really big topics. I think we've got a good mix of people talking about how you can involve your beneficiaries in the work that you're doing and making decisions, but also getting to some of those people that are digitally excluded. Um, I think some really practical stuff that we've got this week, so particularly some of the, the advice we got from Chrissy at Scope, who we're going to hear from, um, and some of the resources we've got this week are, are particularly useful for people, so I'd encourage people to go and explore those as they're listening to the podcast. Yeah, absolutely. I really like the fact that our speakers had really practical tips that people could go away and use straight away that would really make a difference to people who were making use of their services. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's one one of the big messages for this is that accessibility can feel like a very big task and it can feel overwhelming. It feels like it's the realm of digital experts and actually taking some small steps and making some small changes initially, even if that's just simply looking at the content of your website and making sure that that written content on your site is accessible, you've made that first step. I think that's a really big message that came through a lot of the speakers that we've got this week. So over the last few weeks, we've heard a lot of people wonder what they should do about their service users who just aren't online. So we're going to be talking um, to a few people this week about digital inclusion. And the first person up is Aaron Slater from SCVO, who's been working to get more people online with the initiative No One Left Behind. Hi, everyone. Yeah, I'm Aaron Slater. I'm Digital Participation Manager at SCVO. My role is really around supporting programmes of work aimed at helping people get the most out of being online and actually get meaningful benefit from being online. Uh, A lot of the work that we do is around supporting organisations to develop projects and embed a culture of digital inclusion and how they support their users. Uh, So that's kind of the focus of what I want to talk about today and some of the key principles really that you can take away from the call to help you with your response to promoting digital inclusion. Um, and also provide a bit of an update around some of the emerging work we're involved in with No One Left Behind and Digital Scotland. I would talk about accessibility probably in the wider sense, not necessarily accessibility in terms of devices, but how we make being digitally included more accessible and how we use the people that we work with and see digital as a kind of one of the solutions being the people. So we know really that there's three kind of key barriers to being online for people, and that's access to a device at home. Um, having the appropriate connectivity, whether that's through broadband or mobile data, um, and having the skills, motivation, and confidence to then be able to use that device and connectivity to get that meaningful benefit from being online. 
in the context of coronavirus, there are significant new challenges for how we promote and enable digital inclusion work across Scotland. Has forced us to rethink a lot of the service delivery models that we have, uh, which we've traditionally focused on using community settings and community groups. Really, uh, we're losing out, I suppose, on opportunities as well for someone else mentioned those public Wi Fi spots as well around connectivity. So, there are increased challenges around doing digital inclusion work and getting more people online. But over the last few weeks, we've been involved as part of a coordinated response across public, private, and voluntary sector as part of the No One Left Behind program which Ross is involved in as well, and I know our colleagues from War Collective uh, are on the call as well. The aims of that project really to accelerate levels of digital inclusion in Scotland, and the levels of digital exclusion have really been magnified uh, through coronavirus and the lockdown that everyone's going through at the moment, and thinking about how digital exclusion really exacerbates social exclusion and what we can do about that. Kind of, in a nutshell, the key... The key aims of the programme are to find those that are digitally excluded, and that's coordinating efforts across NHS, local government, voluntary sector, getting devices to them. Uh, we want to try and have some sense of universality in terms of devices. We're going to talk about the training in a little bit. That's just to supplement or support how we're going to deliver that training. Make sure that the devices have connectivity, probably initially looking at 4G SIM cards, but thinking longer term on the initial response about how we sustain uh, the legacy of the program and think about better home connectivity for people and um, provide a national network of digital champions or digital buddies to support the skills, motivation, confidence side of what we want to do. Because it's all fine and well giving someone a device which is connected to the internet, but if they've never been online before there or have certain fears about the internet, that's a useless task because they need that support to help them get online. So that's, that's kind of no one left behind in a nutshell. It is a huge piece of work. A piece of work we're really proud to be involved in, but a piece of work we also realise is probably going to take, you know, a considerable amount of time due to the scale and coordination required. But first of all, I suppose my kind of key tips around digital inclusion, I've got a few things, kind of principles, I suppose, more than anything that you could probably take away from this. Uh, And the first one is to be a digital champion. Some of you might be aware of what the concept of a digital champion is. Digital champions are traditionally staff or volunteers in organisations working in the community who aren't IT experts because they don't need to be. They're not from the IT team, the frontline staff doing community-facing work, and they've got a passion for digital, and they have the ability to use the trusted relationships they have with the people they work with to get them interested in digital, digital to understand the benefits, and to help kind of over time do little bursts of activity with them to help them build up their motivation and confidence to be online. So any role in an organization that is front-facing, that has direct contact with users, those are the roles that really someone who would be good as a digital champion, that's the kind of role they might be in. Um, So we're currently working with Irene and Shona from More Collective on what training for digital champions for your organization looks like in this new landscape of isolation and lockdown uh, and how we can, through No One Left Behind, deliver support to your organizations around upskilling your staff to become digital champions and what that looks like and to deliver that remotely whenever you can't get one-to-one face-to-face access to people you work with for the most part. Second key tip would probably be to find the hook. Motivation is one of the biggest barriers um, along with affordability. Uh, A lot of people just don't see a benefit to being online and also we have to accept a lot of people just don't want to be online and that's absolutely fine. It's not about forcing it on people that just genuinely don't want it. 
but letting people see the potential benefits and tapping into their interests, which is again where if you've got staff on the front line who have those relationships with your users, they'll be well placed to understand what the potential hook might be. So an example of quiet life was from Big Hearts. Um, it's one of the organizations we've worked with. They did some work with some of their uh, older users around um, using the internet, using Google Maps to go and look at different parts of Edinburgh, parts of Edinburgh that they've never seen in maybe 30, 40 years, and be able to revisit those through Google Maps, through Street View, or put together YouTube playlists of songs they haven't heard in a while. So just thinking about what are the interests, because people really need to get, need to be able to address their own interests to be able to develop further skills in using the internet. Also, probably addressing fears is a good principle to take away. We've all got our own fears and prejudices around being online. And that's especially true for someone who's never been online. Fears about their online safety, about having their identity stolen. Uh, friends and family have fears for their loved ones as well. So thinking about what people's fears are and being able to have an open discussion about those fears. And also thinking about frontline staff, again, understanding the needs of the people they're working with and then being best placed to understand how to navigate some of those fears and actually thinking about the risks as well uh, associated with that. Also linked into fears, I would say it's not just your users, it'll be your staff as well. And staff have a lot of fears. They have fears about also increasing vulnerability and risk for the people they're working with. So it's applying those same principles that we're using with all the new digital platforms we're going on to, doing that kind of risk assessment around what is the risk level for this person. My last key tip is probably just keeping it person-centered, which I think is hopefully what's been coming out of everything else I've said. So understanding what, um, what that person's interests are. So we would say start with, start with the foundations. We, a lot of the work we do is based on the Essential Digital Skills Framework. That's a UK-wide framework and there's five key kind of essential digital skills. And kind of sitting within the middle of that is your foundation skills. So they're the basics like, do you know how to turn on a device? Can you interact with the home screen? Do you know how to adjust the volume settings? So it's not making assumptions and not being judgmental if someone's never done that before. It's being patient and being able to talk someone through the basics of using the device. So we'd say start with that, don't make assumptions, and then maybe pick one or two of the key essential skills, but make sure they're skills that are linked to the interests of that person. And especially in the landscape in which we're all working right now, thinking about what would be maximum benefit or a quick win for that person? Would it be learning how to do video calling? Would it be learning how to do online shopping? If you can get a delivery slot, that is. What one or two key takeaways and quick wins could we get from this interaction? And taking the lead from that person in terms of what it is they want to get out of it. And that gives them a lot better chance then of continuing their learning journey. Um, so again, I'll post the link to the framework for that and some of the skills we're actually creating a stripped back version off the checklist that we usually use. Uh, we've stripped it back in the context of coronavirus and being in self-isolating uh, just to make it a bit more, just kind of some of the key requirements. So in terms of next steps in the next few weeks around the No One Left Behind stuff, we'll hopefully be putting out a call via digitalparticipation.scot, which is the digital inclusion website that we administer along on behalf of Scottish governments. Uh, we'll be calling on organizations to sign up for, I suppose, a referral pathway into No One Left Behind, but also to sign up and make commitments under the Digital Participation Charter uh, to upskill a certain amount of your staff as well to become digital champions. We're going to be doing that work with Ross, with Irene and Shona and more collective 
uh, around remote delivery for staff and help them get some of the basics around remote support for people to help them get online. So look out for that in the coming weeks. Of course, we can't get everyone online overnight, but it's great to hear these tips on how to potentially give more people the ability to get online. If you want to talk more about digital inclusion and the No One Left Behind initiative, you can join their Slack channel by messaging at DigiScott on Twitter. Now, there's lots of reasons why people might not be online. Aaron pointed out how some people might have some fear around digital. Some people just aren't motivated to get online. Um, Some lack the skills and the devices. But actually, sometimes people just can't use websites due to disabilities. Next up, we're going to hear from Chrissy Barrick, an accessibility expert from Scope. And she's got some really useful tips and insights around how to design for everyone when creating an online service. I think it's fantastic that we're all here together to talk about accessibility and inclusion. My world really is looking at inclusive design and accessibility of digital products and services. So I hope that's useful to you guys today. You probably know if you work in the kind of tech space that in September 2020, any public sector organisation has to have an accessible website. So that probably applies to quite a lot of you. Now, a lot of stuff that I've been doing is kind of going around to various meetups and different communities and chatting to them about kind of how they've been adopting accessibility and how that's that's been working for them. I think one sort of main piece of feedback that we get is that it's really hard to know where to start and there's this kind of looming deadline, but it's like, like I don't even know what's accessible and what isn't on my website. In, in light of that, um, Scope do have services, consultancy services that we can offer um, to support any business who needs to transform their websites and apps to be accessible. But I suppose it's quite timely to, to be talking to you guys at the moment because of coronavirus, Um, we've really changed the program basically we're kind of more firefighting at the moment because for a lot of disabled people who are potentially in high risk groups there's no longer an offline alternative to everyday products and services so this is a huge issue for people who have access requirements because now the only way that they can live their lives is from home you know through the internet and when there are huge access barriers you know stopping you from working, from buying your food, from booking appointments you might need, from planning things, from watching, you know, receiving entertainment online, um, it's going to have a huge impact on people's lives. So what we have done is we have uh, set up a page on the Big Hack website, which essentially any one of you can pop in your website and we will do a light touch audit. We've had loads of people uh, submit their websites so we're quite busy but um you know you guys do have till september so <laughs> we've got a while to, to get back to you guys i just think it's worth taking up the opportunity we are prioritizing based on kind of how crucial organizations are to the public at the moment so um we've had certain nhs hospitals submit their websites and obviously that kind of went to the top of the pile because that information is really important but um, yeah, so I mean, do do make use of that offer that we have there. And I guess like in terms of accessibility, like working in this for a while, there's some really clear priorities that you guys can start off looking at. One of the thir- first things I would advise anyone 
who wants to know how accessible their website is, is just to unplug your mouse and just use the keyboard to tab through your website. So for a lot of people, um, due to a number of reasons, keyboard accessibility is going to be really, really important and they won't be using a mouse. It might be because they have motor disabilities, they might be blind, so they use a keyboard to navigate their screen reader through a page. Some people have tremors which don't allow for fine muscle control. Others have little or no use of hands. And as a result, tabbing through a website going to be the main way that they navigate. So that would be my top tip. Also, it's really eye-opening. So you can, you can see that when you tab through your website, sometimes you end up becoming completely trapped and you can realize how frustrating it is for someone using that to navigate. So holiday booking websites are quite interesting to look at because often you'll get trapped on the date picker. So literally then you're just stuck in the website and there's no point in using it. So I guess that's kind of one top tip. Um, another one which I think doesn't really get talked about enough, which is the content that you're writing. And I think that's really important at the moment because um, if you're anything like us, we are frantically pulling together content around how our customers might be affected by coronavirus and um, how they can, you know, how they can mitigate that and where they can reach services and support, etc. So for content, we're all brought up to write really elaborate, flowery content. It's celebrated, you know, I went to, I studied English at uni and basically kind of the more elaborate and Jane Austen sounding the better. <laughs> so that's a real no-no when someone just needs information quickly and they're kind of, they're probably on your website looking for something. So what we do is we, across Scope, using something called Hemingway app, and I mean, it's, it doesn't give you kind of everything you need, but it is a really fantastic resource because what you can do is you can write your content, you paste it into Hemingway and it will just flag up anything that's really difficult. Um, so the average reading age in the UK is age nine. So anything kind of age nine or above, it will flag up. It will flag up if you're using the passive voice, it will flag up if sentences are too complicated. So that's really useful. I'd encourage you to use that and you can start, you know, any essential information on your websites, you can start pasting that into Hemingway and taking a look and there's some really quick fixes that you can make. In terms of the Big Hack program itself, we have kind of a number of audiences. Our main audience is product teams in any business. So that's people who are building websites, um, designing content, etc. And I think what we're trying to do really with that is um, trying to make accessibility accessible. I, I've, I used to be in a digital team and when we heard the word accessibility, we all kind of ran a mile because no one wanted to be the one to have to decipher WCAG, which is W-C-A-G, Google it. It's very boring. It's very long. It's quite tough to understand and navigate. It's an amazing piece of work, but it is challenging for your average Joe who sort of comes across accessibility. If you're anything like me, you fell into digital, so you're not like you're not embedded in that world, but you're very much at the forefront of it. So, the Big Hack has a number of resources which we hope to make accessibility accessible. And it also has stories from disabled people. 
Um, and they're really powerful because they actually tell anyone who's reading what it's like to navigate the internet when you're blind or when you have a cognitive impairment or when you're deaf, for example. And I think getting close to those stories really helps you understand how frustrating it really is. On top of that, we crowdsource disabled people's feedback um, on the online world. And what we've done is we've designed a very gorgeous analytics platform that is super accessible, which we're really proud of, which basically uh, kind of gives all the crowdsourcing information that we've gathered um, into an analytics tool. The analytics tool is quite fun if, if you just want to see what people are saying, but also it can be quite useful if you're lobbying internally in your own organization for accessibility to be prioritized because there's tons and tons and tons of qualitative feedback that people have been giving us, basically telling their stories of where kind of accessibility has stopped them paying their bills, for example, which is really big. So that's really useful. You can also Google any business kind of, or anything. You can search, uh, use the search bar in there and you can find what people are saying. So you could search within that an analytics platform for your own organization or any other major organizations and see what people are saying. That has had around 400 and something responses, but we're going to be putting a big marketing spend behind it. So we'll be getting a lot more responses across the year. I guess from kind of my perspective, the last thing I just mentioned is if you do want to be updated on what the big hack is doing, um, any work that we're doing with businesses, any campaigns you've got coming out, any kind of free audits or advice that we can offer, I would recommend you sign up to our newsletter, which you can do. I think it's all over the, the website where you can sign up. So do take a look and sign up and, um, and we can update you and support you. So online accessibility can sometimes be very overwhelming. And I think it was great to hear some really practical tips on accessibility there from Chrissy. And it was interesting to be reminded about things like reading age, and we might not always think about that, but that's such a crucial component of accessibility to make sure your information is accessible to everyone. And leading on nicely from that section, we've got Christine Harrison from RNIB Scotland. And she was talking about how visually impaired people might need support getting online and how RNIB have been dealing with that remotely. So I'm from RNIB and during, I suppose, this time, there's been like four major issues for people with um, sight loss. The first being things like access to food and medication, even people who normally have independence and even digital independence are finding you know, it's difficult, more difficult to get online and get your shopping and difficult to be out. Some of the pathways that they normally use to get things are, are kind of closed now. The other things are difficulties with social distancing um, and also eye care because all of that kind of stuff has sometimes been put on hold or sometimes it's quite difficult to access. But a big one that I can really talk about more is uh, social isolation just because well, everybody's feeling socially isolated and one of the ways that we are trying to mitigate that is, is with, with technology. So I'm from RNIB's Technology for Life team and we operate around the, the whole of the UK but we do do a lot of work with our colleagues um, in Scotland and I know that as part of 
um, the emergency going on there's been a lot of welfare calls to people and you know trying to help them with all those various issues that they have as well as trying to problem solve for them how they can keep in touch with family how they can access things but also you know how they can just keep themselves going and one of the one of the big things um, that my team manages is our grants um, system people with sight loss can access our grants program and we have kind of opened it up a bit as well um, in terms of devices but also in terms of who can apply and how they apply made it a bit simpler and that's been really helpful so it's given people access to to braille readers to you know they could use it towards an iphone or you know anything so they can access uh the internet obviously there are issues with just giving someone a, a device as aaron was saying you know it's not just getting a device to people it's actually having them embrace it having them want it and need it but also training them how to do it um so luckily we do have um a team that does that our technology for life team um and we've got a national helpline that people can contact then if they they are wanting specific help with technology and that ranges from interest in devices or um, it could be actual training in, in a device or setting up a new device. So normally we would have a whole host of volunteers all around the country that could go out and actually physically help go around and do a home visit. Obviously you can't do that now. So we are currently, I suppose, retraining some of our volunteers. It's a very different skill set to help over the phone than it is to to do it in person so they might have a more limited array of skills that they can offer but obviously we can get volunteers from anywhere phoning up and providing support we do also have a a set of specialist um well i call them specialists they don't like that but they are blind or partially sighted people who are users of the technology so if it's something really advanced or you know quite involved and you really need to know it inside out and be a user um, then we've got people that can can uh, can do that as well so we are trying to give a kind of holistic approach to technology but some of our other services are able to kind of pick up where we can't I suppose because we are still um, our site loss advice service um, our talk and support kind of colleagues are running like phone groups um and things like that you don't necessarily have to be online to access some of this stuff um and we are trying to put people in just in touch with the right right people and also in touch locally so there's a lot of kind of referring and consulting but generally there's a there's a few different ways that people and um, can get help there's quite a few other useful things for example we've made our news agent free for for people with sight loss at the minute so they can actually access news and there's things like we do have like a a skill on the echo that people can use to, to access our news agent services and things like that and of course like at the minute our talking book service which is free to all people who can't read print uh, usual print that is also available to people there is a link to site advice faq um, which is a really handy website that we use ourselves really if we're not sure about something so aside from um, the stuff that Chrissy was talking about with regards to accessible websites there's some other things on there with regards to things like accessible documents and presentations that people might find useful it just gives us a few pointers towards how, how you can make stuff like that if you're giving out information and you want to include 
things like a good example is if you try and tab through the email application form for PBG that's been put out you'll probably find you won't you won't get very far <laughs> and things like that some of some of the documents that are flying around aren't necessarily accessible so it's good to kind of bear, bear that in mind so um, and we're always happy to help with stuff like that and also I would say with our helpline it's not just for our customers like other people can can phone like professionals or people from other organizations um if you're phoning on behalf of someone with sight loss please please use it because that's why why it's there and so finally this week we're going to hear from peter jacobs who's been telling us about how bernardo's use whatsapp to transform one of their important offline services working with victims of child exploitation as ross said um i'm working Bernardo's and uh, I'm also joined on the call by Tom Norman who's the service designer who's the brains behind the entire WhatsApp thing I just um, picked it up and, and delivered it it's, it's an interesting one the, the WhatsApp pilot that Bernardo's running is a quite small scale it's uh, working with less than 20 um, workers in uh, Portsmouth uh, around exploit in their exploitation missing and return service um, and advocacy service Tom did a lot of work with the team down there mapping out how those services actually work who's involved at what points what decisions need to be taken and those kind of things and we translated those into um, a digital process which is where the guts of it are on whatsapp so the communication between the work and the young person on whatsapp but before the whatsapp um, conversation starts we send them a, um, a digital welcome pack which has um, a biography of the worker and an image of the worker, some information about what consent is in plain English, um, and just kind of an introduction to what's going to happen when you're when you're talking to Bernardos, because young people who are referred are often confused and or don't understand what the what the purpose of the the visit is. And then following that introduction to the service, we introduced a digital service agreement. So rather than the massive legal english written pdfs that are given to the young person when they first meet which they have to sign without understanding we broke it down into a, a three-stage process of what happens before the meeting during the meeting and after the meeting and just covers like a code of conduct uh, around you won't have taken drugs or alcohol and you respect for those opinions and those kind of things at the end of that the young person needed to accept those that was then logged in a Google Sheet, which triggered an email to the admin within the, the pilot office. And the pilot office would then let the worker know that consent had been given and they could start to communicate on WhatsApp. So that was the kind of off WhatsApp part of it. The on WhatsApp part of it, although we knew that most of the workers would have used it with their five-side teams or their family groups or whoever it may be, using it in that context and using it to discuss what could be sensitive topics with a young person that very very different propositions there is a, a i don't know like an open public folder on the bernardo's google drive which gives the the training materials we developed for android phone users and iphone users um because they're slightly different things within whatsapp uh, and that covers the technical aspects of it so how to change your settings so images don't download automatically to your camera roll so if something's shared inappropriate with you it doesn't then become on your device and your device doesn't become like legal evidence kind of thing so feel free to have a look through all of those um and there's also some some guidelines which were mostly tom's work which cover 
like how how you should communicate like what tone you should use don't use emojis don't use gifs things that can be misconstrued um but how to yeah set that tone how to um, maintain that relationship with the young person so that's the the background of the project it wasn't a simple process to get there we we did quite a lot of work around what risks there may be and a lot of work with the data protection team within Bernardo's. It's difficult. WhatsApp is kind of the best of a bad bunch for this kind of work, um, in my view. We're not using a special version of WhatsApp. It is the standard WhatsApp that everybody everybody gets. Um, the fact that it's encrypted end-to-end, so the only readable versions of it are on the worker's device and the young person's device, is um, is a real benefit. But there are obviously data issues around potentially sensitive conversations going going on within that so as part of the instruction to the young people um sorry to the workers we said they should <clears throat> use it for conversation use it for arranging meetings use it for building a relationship but if you your conversation starts to stray into potentially sensitive areas then they should pick up the phone or go and see them or like do it by a more appropriate route now that's obviously been changed uh quite substantially in the last three weeks given the um, restrictions on movement um the pandemic have brought in so they have actually been using it as part of their business continuity plan um given they're the pilot area they already have access to it and they're finding it really useful in being able to continue to deliver services in fact they've had a case where this is pre-pandemic, but somebody um, who was underage and um, was at risk of exploitation was taken out of the country, um, back to their country of origin. And without them being on WhatsApp, the, they would have had no communication with her. But because that, that connection existed, they could support in the, in the country of origin. They worked with the young person to find resources in country who could support her and uh, and kind of got it to a good resolution and then handed it over to the the in-country team but i mean we wanted to we wanted to use whatsapp for obvious reasons it's ubiquitous it's um relatively secure at the minute it's really important that it's outside of bernardo's infrastructure because with the number of remote workers there's a lot of stress on the infrastructure so it being outside is great and we wanted to use try and use it to reduce the administration time that the workers had to undergo so by using whatsapp could we streamline the gaining consent process could we streamline the service agreement process and automate those to a certain extent so digital delivery of previously paper paperwork worked really well it's worth saying we're not mandating that users use whatsapp this is where your organization needs to be quite robust because the terms of use for whatsapp are 16 plus even though other companies in the facebook group are 13 plus which is based on copper um, legislation in the us so we're not mandating that young people use whatsapp if an under 16 year old is using whatsapp um, and they want to communicate by that route then bernardo's um, took the call for the pilot that we would communicate using whatsapp we're looking at that again because we're looking at scaling it up for the current situation so that may change but it's not the only service route is always in addition to other service routes. So we don't force people to use WhatsApp to get services. They can always text, they can phone, not currently, but they can do face-to-face meetings. Please don't ask me any questions about GDPR. <laughs> um, 
there is a gray area around GDPR um, because WhatsApp accesses your contacts as a condition of service, takes the data from your device and then processes it against their list of WhatsApp users. So you can see Dave is, uh, hey, I'm using WhatsApp. WhatsApp claim they don't process the data. Hmm, that's, that's the gray area. Um, but in terms of data location, it's, it's um, within the US or of data centers, but they're covered by the privacy shield. So that, that transfer should, should be covered. The other element of that is Facebook signed an agreement with the ICO in the UK saying they wouldn't share data between Facebook, Instagram, and WhatsApp until the ICO was satisfied that they complied with GDPR. I haven't seen anything to tell me that that has changed. So the data shared with WhatsApp currently should only be shared with WhatsApp. Whether that will remain the case is, yeah. is, a, is another question. We hope that that's helped start untangle how you can work on digital inclusion and digital accessibility and to make sure that people who might be excluded can be reached and can access services that they need to remotely. Anything else that you want to kind of pick up, John, that came out of that discussion this week? Well, I think one really interesting common thread across the two topics was that importance of understanding how the people you're working with are using the internet and getting online. So if people are facing issues of social exclusion, that might be around understanding they might not have much data available on their device. They might have quite a basic device that they're using. But if it's issues around accessibility, it could be about, right, they're not able to see a screen or it's tricky for them to use a mouse. So it's really having that understanding of what's going on in their life that might make it tricky to use standard online content and then using that insight to improve your services. I think what's really top of everybody's awareness right now is the fact that we're all using digital channels for almost 100% of our contacts. So it's really important to make sure they are as accessible as possible. Yeah, absolutely. As I said earlier on, I think, you know, if we can encourage people to look at, uh, we've got a spreadsheet of case studies and resources, and you can request some specific digital help from SCVO. And if people need to speak to accessibility experts, we can do some of that signposting, but there's really good resources out there already, some of the stuff that, that Chrissy mentioned. The link to that, again, is in the, the podcast description. But yeah, I think just that, that fundamental lesson that, I hope lots of people have taken away from this call of you need to start somewhere and starting small is okay. And then you can build upon that. And particularly where you're a charity that doesn't have the luxury of having a digital team in-house or you haven't outsourced a lot of this stuff is actually you really need to think about how you can offer your services to this broader range of people in an accessible way. Yeah. And I like the fact with Bernardo's and that example, they were doing work with very vulnerable groups. So they had to think quite carefully about their approach to risk and so on. But they were also upfront about what they were testing and Mm. piloting. So they were willing to try something new because I think it would be easy sometimes if you're working with certain groups to think, oh, well, there's no dedicated platform for this yet. So we'll just sit in our hands. But it's actually quite important to to make a start and, and try something. Yeah, absolutely. So. Coming out of the call this week, we've got a couple of great resources. So we've got a blog from Irene on inclusion. So she's a real expert in that area and it's really useful insights. And then we've got a nice introduction to accessibility, just covering some of the main topics we picked up on the call and linking out to some great resources to get you started. Both of those will be on our website at scvo.org.uk. 
So that's all we've got time for this week. But we're going to be back next week with an Ask Me Anything with Beth Cantor. Yes, this is one I'm particularly excited about. So Beth is one of these people that I guess kind of got me into digital as a tool for good years and years ago. And, you know, books like The Network Nonprofit. Um, And just, I guess, being a a voice in this sector for the power of digital. And so having her on is is a massive coup. Beth's got a quarter of a million followers on Twitter um, she's spoken to US government, foundations. Her client list is is pretty staggering. So having that opportunity for people to ask a question of her is, is pretty amazing. And it's really good that she's able to join the call, particularly the fact that she's having to join at 8 a.m. her time, which is 4 p.m. Uh, British summer time. So quite particularly impressed that she's getting up early to enjoy it and to, to join us. Yeah, it's wonderful. And if you can join that Zoom call, it's going to be Thursday the 23rd of April at 4 p.m. UK time. And the sign-up link will be in the podcast description. And as Ross said, you've got the chance to submit a question in advance. So that can help you get a really insightful answer from Beth. We're looking forward to that conversation. And you can find more episodes in this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and most other podcast platforms. So please do subscribe, review us, and send it on to anyone you think might find it helpful. And we'd love to hear what you're making of the podcast. So do drop us a line at third sector lab or at digiscott on twitter and thanks for listening look forward to seeing you next week thanks very much to everybody who made this podcast happen first of all the charities who joined us in the call and shared all their wisdom secondly tech for good live podcast crew who brought it all together and finally we're part of the catalyst which is a uk-wide network supporting charities to make better use of digital. 